Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. everyone and welcome to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. All right, on to the episode and we've got an especially compelling story for you today. I'm very pleased to have as my guest author Phil Hammond, who along with his wife Sandy wrote the national bestseller Gitchy Girl about the Gitchy Manitou quadruple murder case. Sandy is here also and standing by. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. So where did the title Gitchy Girl come from? Well, Eric, uh, the lone survivor of the mass murder. Uh, first of all, I have a personal connection to this mass murder. My best friend was killed that night at Gitchy Manitou, and all the other three boys that lost their lives were from my neighborhood, and I went to school with them. And Sandra Chesky, the 13-year-old lone survivor of that uh, mass murder, became known as the Gitchy Girl around the area. It became kind of a derogatory nickname for her because the murder happened at Gitchy Manitou State Park in northwest Iowa. And so when everything was uh, the dust kind of settled on everything, she was kind of known as the Gitchy Girl. Interesting. And she plays a, a vitally important role in this book. She's the lone survivor of this horrific, slaughterous night. How did you connect with her and where did the idea come from to write a book about this? Eric, here's what here's what happened. I've known Sandra Chesky uh, since we were teenagers as well. Uh, Sandra went silent about what happened that night for 40 years. Each year on the anniversary of that mass murder, the newspaper and media would like to get a statement from her, do a story. She turned everybody down for many, many years and wouldn't open up about exactly what took place that night. So it became kind of a a mystery. She was kind of this mystery person and all these rumors about the Gitchy Manitou mass murder. Now, I had a personal connection to the story. She knew that about seven years ago, I wrote a memoir that got published and it was about overcoming life in an impoverished neighborhood and a single mom home 
a lot of domestic violence in the area and overcoming and uh, making it, you know, to become a teacher and work with uh, students with uh, behavior disabilities. She read that book and she was moved by it and she thought maybe she should open up and tell her story. It might be able to help other victims of sexual assault. And so that's how it happened. She contacted us. So it was kind of a serendipitous moment. You wrote about this, it inspired her, and then you connected together. Exactly. Oh, wonderful. So I'd like to ask you about the geography first. Where exactly is Gitchie Manitou? Gitchie Manitou State Park is about 15 miles straight east of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You cross the line just into Iowa. So the Gitchie Manitou State Park is in the far northwest corner of Iowa, kind of like the tri-state area, Minnesota, South Dakota, and uh, Iowa. And so the kids, a little tiny portion of Gitchie Manitou is actually in South Dakota, but most of the park is in South Dakota, or excuse me, Iowa. Gotcha. So let's start right in, if you don't mind. This all happens on the evening of November 17th, 1973. Would you mind walking us through all of this? Yeah, um, let me let me go back just a little bit before November, though, Eric. Let's give the listeners a little background. Let's go late summer of 1973. You've got a young 13-year-old girl, Sandra Chesky. She did not go to our high school. She was not from our city. She was from a small town outside of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Very pretty. She did not look 13. She looked 16. One evening on a hot summer night, she was at the drive-in movie theater with some friends that were older, 16-year-old, 17-year-old friends. They drove. She went with them. She happened to run into a young man, 17-year-old Roger Essam. By the way, I knew him well. He lived one block from me. Very friendly guy. They just happened to bump into each other at the concession stand of the drive-in movie theater. Now, this is going to be important later on because one of the big problems with this thing is what was a 13-year-old girl doing dating a 17-year-old? Well, Sandra did not look 13. She looked like she was 16 or 17. They struck up a conversation. Roger asked her out for a date sometime. He assumed she was 16 or 17. And for the short time they dated, she kept that a guarded secret. She just told Roger that she went to Harrisburg School District, which was outside of Sioux Falls. And she kept that a guarded secret for the short time they dated. It was very innocent dating, always group dating, a pretty innocent teenage thing. But a lot of the the horrible rumors that went around were what was a 13-year-old girl doing dating a 17-year-old boy. That's what happened, Eric. So now we can fast forward to the night of November 17, 1973. It was a pretty mild fall night. I'm still teaching high school. I tell the kids, you know, we couldn't just pop in a CD and watch a movie. We didn't have computers and cell phones. Kids got together. They went to a lake. They went to somebody's house. And that's what this group of kids did. So you had 17-year-old Roger Essam. He'd kind of gone out with Sandra a couple times, asked her if she wanted to go out to get you Manitou that evening. They were going to go out, a handful of kids, build a fire, bring a guitar, and just hang out for a while. And Stuart Beatty was an 18-year-old senior from our high school. He had the vehicle. He drove a van. They asked his uh, Stuart's little 14-year-old brother to go along. And my former best friend, Mike Hadrath, was 15 at the time, all from the neighborhood. And so the kids get together, and they decide to go out to Gitchy Manitou for a couple hours, build a fire, and hang out. And that's where it all started. When you think of these events, and we haven't really 
started talking about them yet at this point, but where were you at this time? Were you close enough to them that you were actually aware that they were going out that night? Could that have been something you might have been invited to? I've ha- I've had several people ask me that, Eric, and I don't believe I would have. I just I just made the high school varsity wrestling team. I was a, I was an underclassman that made the varsity. We were having Saturday practices. I just started the sport. I don't think I would have been with them that night. I'd I'd like to ask you about the Fryer brothers. Uh, they seem to have been some really bad dudes before the murders. Can you give us some background on them and what brought them to the state park that night? Basically, what happens that night, uh, Eric, is is something out of a horror movie. You know, it's the thing that people fear when they're in a secluded area. So the kids have built this fire. Okay, they're sitting around. They're playing the guitar. A heavy, heavy fog rolls in, if you can imagine this. In fact, the Lyon County Sheriff and Deputy from that area that had jurisdiction over Gitche Manitou would drive out there every Friday and Saturday evening about the time these murders were taking place and run teenagers out of there. There was, you know, they'd a lot of beer parties, kids hanging out. They tried to go there that night, but the fog was so heavy, they almost got on a head-on collision, so they pulled off going to the park that night. So there's just all this stuff. So the kids are sitting around. They don't know that three deviant men have come to the park. Three brothers, what it turns out to be, Friar brothers, all convicted felons, all having records, some violent backgrounds. And these three brothers had actually gone to Gitche Manitou State Park to poach a deer that night. And they heard the kids playing the guitar. And of course, then they start spying and making their plans for the evening. Did you know these guys personally? I No, they were, you know, I was 15 at the time. My best friend, Mike Hadreth, who got killed that night was 15. Roger Essam, 17. Stuart Beatty, 18 and Stuart's little brother, 14. These guys were like 21, 24, and 29. They had lived around the Sioux Falls area, uh, rural communities. A lot. They worked had worked as farm hands around the area, but they were, they were bad dudes from the time they were teenagers. Uh, in the book, Get You Girl Uncovered, we go into their backgrounds and some of their teenage crimes. They were career criminals. And one of them was in prison during the time of the murders and on work release, right? What happened was he was in jail. He was in the Sioux Falls, Minnehaha County Jail. The youngest brother, probably the most dangerous, uh, the jail had a work release program, Eric, and he was a tow truck driver. And he was supposed to be, the jail had a work release program. And this James Fryer, who went by the nickname of Sneaky, by the way, was working a tow truck service job that day. The, the work release program allowed, if they weren't charged with a violent crime, which he wasn't at the time, he was doing jail time for stolen goods. They could keep their job, check out, work a shift, and then come back and lock up at jail. But that evening, he decides he wants to go out to Gitche Manitou State Park with his brothers and poach a deer. So he has his middle brother, David Fryer, who went by the nickname Hatchet Face, call the jail, impersonate his boss, and say that they needed him to run an extra shift. So he was free to run around that evening, okay, and is involved in a mass murder and rape, and then conveniently goes back to the jail and locks up while this manhunt is going on after the mass murder occurs. So it's a real bizarre twist to the whole thing. And then the oldest one, Alan Fryer, uh, called himself the boss, okay? That's pretty delusional, isn't it? 
Well, David, let's talk hatchet face right now. One of the things, probably the most dangerous that the psychiatrist said was the youngest one, Sneaky. He was, he's the main rapist that night. He was one of the main executioners of the boys. We'll get into that. Uh, but I'll give you a little background on the 24 year old hatchet face. When he was a 16 year old teenager, him and a friend were driving around the Sioux Falls, South Dakota area with a loaded 22 rifle shooting at people out of their car windows. Luckily, nobody, nobody was killed, but they were eventually, uh, run down in a high speed chase with the deputy sheriff. And uh, David Fryer did time in a juvenile detention lockup facility for shooting at people when he was a teenager. And then one time also, David Fryer, when he was out again, was in a high-speed chase. Uh, he had one of his accomplices was driving, and he hung out the passenger side window and was shooting at a pursuing deputy sheriff that was behind him in another incident. So these guys had pretty violent backgrounds. Good golly. Ugh. So were they violent only when they were intoxicated, or, or were they bad all of the time? Eric, they were not intoxicated nor doing drugs that night. Okay, they were, they were. That's what they did. Total so sociopaths, psychopaths, whatever you want to talk about. We'll we'll maybe get into a motive later on in the podcast here. Some uh, strange things about the uh, the motive, and you know what my theory is, and some of the Iowa Bureau of Cr Criminal Investigations theory is on it. We agreed on what we believe happened that night. So, so your friend and his friends were all together, just enjoying the night, singing songs, minding their own business. And they, that what happens, Eric? They start hearing noises, leaves crunchies, twigs snapping, like sound of den denim brushing against. You know, and it's very foggy. They're kind of getting pretty spooked. You know, they're but they're teenage kids. They want to stay out there. So they're making jokes. Oh, it's a bear. Well, there's no bears in this area. It's just a deer. And they're convincing themselves it's it's nothing. But Sandra's getting quite frightened. It's a little spooky. Somebody suggested that they leave. And then they just said, oh, we're just, you know, we're, we're being silly about this. It's nothing. Well, it was something. And it's about to take place. Were there other people down there or, or was it pretty quiet? Yeah, it was just the kids. It was just the teenage kids and the killers out there. And, of course, the deputy from Lyon County and the sheriff couldn't make it there that night. The fog was too thick. They didn't make it to run the kids out. Had they made it there that night because of the fog, uh, wouldn't have been such heavy fog, they may have ran those kids out and they wouldn't have been there when those killers came out. It's just kind of a it's a, it's a crazy situation. So as the kids are sitting there, Eric, they think they see movement. And then, sure enough, up on a rock ledge about 20 yards away, they see shadowy figures. They're holding weapons. And then Roger Essam stands up and says, who are you? What do you want? And then a blast of a shotgun echoes across the campsite. Roger crumples. There's more shooting. Stuart Beatty, the 18-year-old, severely wounded. Sandra is frozen with fear. And my best friend, Mike Hadras, grabs her by the shirt and physically drags her behind a tree to safety. Dana, the 14-year-old, he ran off into the trees and hid too. And while these kids are hiding... They don't know what's going on, but they can hear Stuart. He's really in a lot of pain. Oh, God, help me. I'm wounded. They've shot me. I'm hurt so bad. And the kids don't know what's going on. Sandra keeps whispering to Mike, what's going on? What's happening? And they can see the assailant starting to move down off the rock ledge, move towards the campfire. And it's just, it's a horrible thing. You obviously have Sandra's firsthand account. Yes. 
did the thought cross their minds ever just to, to run, or were they so concerned about their friend that they couldn't leave? Here's what happened. In, in a lot of the high school kids that I work with now in the high school, they say, uh, Mr. Hammond, why didn't they just go deeper into the woods, go across the river if they had to to get away? I said, you guys, because we know what's going to happen. They were frightened. They didn't know what to do. And then these assailants were not only ruthless, but they were sneaky and cunning. They start yelling, we're the police. This is a raid. Come out with your hands up. And they fooled these kids, Eric. My friend turned to Sandra and they said, I don't know why the cops are shooting at us, but don't run. They've already shot at us for whatever reason. These kids had never been in any trouble in the law. They were well-liked at school. Teachers liked them. And when the cops tell you to come out with your hands up, you do it. And that's what they did. They fooled these kids. So Sandra comes out with her hands up. My friend Mike Hadreth comes out with his hands up. And the 14-year-old Dana Beatty comes out with his hands up. And as they're walking towards the assailant, my friend Mike says, why are you shooting at us? The tall, thin assailant, who we know as the boss, pulls the shotgun up to his shoulder and shoots my friend in the chest and shoulder. The blast of the shotgun spins him around, knocks him to the ground. And Sandra, although she's not hit, instinctively falls down and tries to play dead like she's been hit. Well, that doesn't fool them. They're eventually the kids are kicked. Sandra's kicked and made to get up. Mike is kicked, although he's in excruciating pain. They have to stand up with their hands in the air again. They eventually, they keep telling these kids they're cops, but the boys know there's something wrong. They wouldn't, the cops wouldn't act this way. They'd be in uniform. They tell Sandra they, they forgot handcuffs or they didn't bring them, so they got some bailing wire out of the pickup and wired her hand behind her back. And uh, we know it's coming here for Sandra Chesky. Not that I want to get into the minds of these three guys ever. <laughs> but what was their motive at this point? C- can you clarify this? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll jump to what, what I believe after investigating this thing from all angles and talk with the BCI agents. First of all, we've got sociopaths, Eric. They, can, they, they love this control. They have these shotguns. They can control these kids any way they want. They come in and they do. I believe it was about the sexual assault. When the shooting started, they only aimed at who they thought were the males. And the boss tells Sandra later, when you take the men out, then everything gets easier. Now, they did not aim at Sandra when they started pulling the trigger. And they didn't shoot at Dana Beatty. He was only 14, very young looking. His hair was shoulder length, early 1970s style. He had a light jacket on. They thought he was a female too. When they rounded the kids up, they wanted him to prove who he was. They made Dana pull out his wallet. They took it over and looked it under, at, under their headlights of their pickup truck that they came to get Humana to in. And when they found out Dana was indeed a male, they kept him at the park to be executed along with the wounded boys. And, um, and so I believe it was uh, about sexual assault too. So how were they able to keep this facade up of being authority figures? They kept, they kept, they kept telling the kids things like, we've got to meet up with the sheriff here in a little bit. You guys are going to lock up. You're going to probably get two or three years for being out here. One of the older boys had one joint of marijuana. He was a, Stuart was an aspiring musician. He wanted to start a rock band. They had a little tiny bit of marijuana. This plays into the vicious rumors that go about about this mass murder later. They told the kid, because you had some marijuana, you're all going to lock up. We're cops, and we're going to finish this thing out, and you're going to jail. So that's how they kept it up. But the boys didn't believe them. They kept marching the kids around at gunpoint. 
making them set down. Then the assailants would go off and whisper. Then they'd get back up, march the kids around again. At one time, they marched them to the end, edge of the river. The Big Sioux River runs through Gitchie Manitou State Park and made them stand there. And Sandra thought they were going to shoot them all there and drop them into the river. But then they took them again and made them walk some more. And so I don't believe these assailants had a plan at that time. I think they were marching these kids around and making their plans as they went along. They get separated at, at this point, right? Here's what happened. When the, when, when the shooting first started, Eric, Roger Essam dropped down. He was killed instantly by the campfire. Stuart Beatty is severely wounded. And Mike Hadrath now, who came out with his hands up, is severely wounded. Dana Beatty, the 14-year-old, is not wounded. They eventually marched them up about 75 yards away from where the kids' campfire was, up by an old rock shelter that was up there. They put Sandra in their pickup, and the boss takes her away. He's got her in the pickup, and they drive away. Sandra said the last thing she remembers seeing is the three boys, of obviously not Roger because he's been killed back by the fire, standing there at gunpoint by sneaking in hatchet face, and she said, as we drove away slowly, the boss took me away for the rape. I locked eyes with Dana, and it was the saddest thing I've ever experienced. We, we slowly faded away, and I left looking into his eyes. And, of course, the boys were kept out at the park to be executed. And they were executed really quickly. Yes. After the boss leaves, the men made, made a, an arrangement. They were going to take Sandra to an abandoned farm that where they they all knew where, where it was. They called it the North Place, the abandoned North Place. And that's probably about 30 miles from Gitche Manitou State Park. So the three Friar brothers had come out to Gitche Manitou to poach a deer. They were all in the front of a, of a bucket seat pickup truck. Okay. But now Hatchet Face and Sneaky stay out at the park to execute the boys. And they have Stewart's van. They execute and kill the boys, and then they leave in Stewart's van. And, you know, the crazy thing is uh, a lot of your podcast listeners won't really know much about shotguns, but birdshot is a lot of little tiny BBs inside of a, a shotgun shell, and they spread out in the air, and you can shoot a pheasant or a quail down. These guys were loaded up with double-odd buckshot. Double-odd buckshot is powerful enough to kill a deer. It's big round ball bearings. There might only be seven or eight of those in one shotgun shell packed behind high-velocity powder. And that's what these boys were executed with, a double-odd buckshot. So it's pretty devastating murder. Before we get uh, to Sandra, um, in honor of your best friend, could you tell us a favorite memory you have of Michael? Here's the deal. What I'll tell you about Mike Cadreth is I played basketball and baseball with him. He was a tremendous athlete. His uh, PE shorts were adorned with President's Physical Fitness Award patches. And back in the day, if you were a President's Physical Fitness Award winner, you were a well-rounded athlete. He was a pitcher on our baseball teams. He was a point guard on our basketball teams and just an all-around great kid. He held the pull-up record in our grade school. Uh, just a tremendous kid. And Severely wounded, he was still concerned about Sandra. He he didn't let on to her that he thought they were killers. He didn't want to frighten her. I'll tell you an example of how many pull-ups he did. It's very difficult for a 
for a middle school or a grade school kid to do 10 or 12 pull-ups. Uh, in fact, the Marine Corps comes into our high school and recruits, and they set up a pull-up bar in the cafeteria for fun. And if a kid can do 10 pull-ups, they get a Marine Corps T-shirt. In 1969, Mike Hadrath did 43 pull-ups for the President's Physical and Fitness Award. That record never was broke. Wow, huh? So here's here's a kid that imagine being at the the front end of a 12 gauge shotgun that's blasting away. Most people are going to drop, duck, and run. And here's a kid that had enough courage to grab Sandra Chesky, who was frozen with fear, and physically pull her behind a tree to safety. I'm pretty proud of him. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. That's a pretty heroic, selfless thing to do. Yeah, it is. So what is Sandra's experience from this moment forward? Well, you know, the boss drives her around quite a bit. You know, he's telling her all these lies that he was an undercover agent out in California. He was paid $2,000 a week. He infiltrated the Hells Angels. He's just a big bullcrapper telling her all these stories and telling her how much trouble she's going to be in. And if she sticks with him, he'll try to talk to the sheriff and get her out of some trouble. Uh, but we're going to go out to meet my uh, partners, uh, my law enforcement partners out at this uh, abandoned farm. And we're going to practice and think about it going on another raid tonight. Well, he's taking her out there to be raped is what's going to happen. They left. Uh, and then Sneaky and Hatchet Face, David and Alan Fryer, after they they executed the boys, then they took off in Stewart's van. They drove it into Sioux Falls, South Dakota and left it abandoned on a side street, and they took Hatchet Face, David Fryer's little car, out to the north place, the abandoned farm, where now Alan Fryer is waiting with 13-year-old Sandra Chesky. So so here's what happened. So Sandra will uh, tells it this way, and, of course, we, you know, she did write a 13-page handwritten witness statement the next day after the murders, and we'll get into that little scenario, but she's waiting, sitting in the vehicle, and she's taking everything in, the color that the speedometer glows in the dark, the shape of the, the, the glove compartment in this pickup, the color of the inspection sticker. She remembers that there's a crack in the windshield. And all of this is going to become very important when the manhunt for these killers go on. Here's this young girl. She's taking in all of these things. She's talking to this killer, trying to make him connect to her, humanize herself. This girl did so much to try to save herself that night. So anyway, a small car pulls up, and of course, it's hatchet face and sneaky. The boss gets out of the pickup. The three assailants uh, talk in the headlights of the pickup. Sandra's left in the pickup. And then the boss hat and hatchet face, they walk off into the dark, and sneaky crawls in the pickup with Sandra, starts groping her, orders her to take her clothes off. She tells him she's a virgin, and she's violently raped in the pickup of the truck. Her head is knocked against the side of the pickup. He's elbows her in the face. It's a very violent rape for a young girl. Very devastating for her. And in fact, uh, when she finally opened up and decided to tell the story, she was more comfortable, of course, telling my wife. And then, you know, we, we wrote it as medium as we could in the book. We pretty much tell how it happened, but again, tried to be as respectful to her as we could. But it was a, a very devastating thing for a young 13-year-old a girl who was a virgin that night. And she still thinks at this point that her friends are still alive. Yes. At this point, she, they, they're still lying to her. They're saying that they're, they're going to lock up 
and you're you're going to be in trouble and she's confused she's frightened are they bad cops why would they rape her why would they shoot her friends she's just so confused okay and then of course hatchet face after the rape hatchet face drives uh james fryer sneaky back to the county jail it's very early in the morning it's like four o'clock in the morning now and alan fryer the oldest one the 29 year old the self-proclaimed boss is left out to the abandoned farm and he is supposed to kill sandra chesky so he's uh sitting out there and he's in the front of the pickup after the rape he gets back in and he smirks at sandra and he tells her that wasn't so bad was it honey and she says, I was a virgin. He said, no, you weren't. And that's when she tells him, I'm only 13. And he just glared at her. And he said, come on, we have to go into that abandoned farmhouse. There. We're going to go in and see if there's any critters to kill. And he reached behind his seat of his pickup and he pulled out a big, long wooden axe handle and made Sandra get out of the truck and go up and told her we're going to go in this farmhouse. Well, Sandra knows what's coming. When she gets up on the porch and he tells her to go inside the abandoned farm, she pretty much knows he's going to kill her. She takes off running and jumps back in the truck. She doesn't know what else to do. And she's crying and she says, no, I don't want to go in that creepy house. The boss, Alan Fryer, gets back in the pickup and she said he sat for about five minutes in silence. And he goes, all right, tell me where you live and I'm going to take you home. And so she directs him to her house and he drives her to her house. And about a block away, he pulls over and he says, I'm going to let you go tonight. But I don't want you to tell anybody who we are or what we look like. And by the way, if you do, we'll come back and kill you and your entire family. And, oh, before I go, I want your telephone number. I'm going to call you up, and you and I are going to get together in a few days. So I believe we uncovered some information that he kind of liked young girls, young teenage girls. And I feel it was self-serving. I think this sociopath thought he could threaten her, let her go get her phone number, and then call and hook up with this pretty girl a few days later. I think that's, in his sick mind, I think that's where he was going with this whole thing. That's pretty messed up. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. So Sandra goes in. It's, a, it's almost 5 o'clock in the morning. She's confused. She's frightened. She gave them her real phone number. She gave the boss, Alan Fryer, her real phone number. He knows where she lives. Her mom's got to go to work about six in the morning. She's afraid to go tell her mom. She's confused. So she goes in and wakes up her oldest brother and says, would, would cops rape me? And she starts telling him the whole story. And her older brother says, Sandra, they don't sound like real cops. You need to go to the police department tomorrow. You need to, to go and get some sleep and you need to go in and talk to the cops. They don't sound like real cops. And she said, but I think they are. I, I think they know where we live and I'm afraid they'll come back and kill us. So here's this young girl who's got this heavy burden on her mind. Do I keep quiet? Do I go to the police? And she just kind of dozes off a little bit, and her mom leaves for work. And so by the time mid-morning arrives, she decides she probably should go into the Sioux Falls, South Dakota Police Department and tell what happened at Gitche Manitou that night. She doesn't have a ride in. Remember, she lives outside in a small town. Her mom has gone to work. So she calls a friend up. One of her friends comes over. She tells her the whole story. And these two girls decide to hitchhike into Sioux Falls to the police station. A middle-aged woman picks them up and takes them into town where they go to the police station. And that's when Sandra Chesky is again becomes a victim. She was not believed by the homicide detectives. As soon as she was brought in, she was read her rights. 
fingerprinted and mugshotted, and she was considered a suspect right off the bat. So why is that? How can that happen? Well, here's what I always tell the high school kids. I say, okay, you guys are mad at the cops, but let's put ourselves in their shoes. Right away, they tell Sandra, you know this killer. There's nobody that's going to be involved in a mass murder and then take you home when it's all said and done. You're protecting somebody. It's not jiving to these homicide detectives. And by the way, young lady, why would only one of them rape you? If there's three assailants in a mass murder, you're going to be gang raped. That's still an unsolved mystery. We don't know why only one of them raped Sandra. We can only speculate. Probably they didn't want to perform in front of their brothers. Maybe a rape in a car wasn't their thing. Alan Fryer thought he was going to be able to hook up with her a few days later. He got her phone number. Uh, It's just bizarre. But the homicide detectives in Sioux Falls did not believe her. She was a suspect right from the start. And then she finds out that all of her friends have been murdered, and she just collapses in an emotional heap. It's just horrible for her. Now she's a she's a She's a suspect, and now she knows all of her friends have been murdered. And she has to go back to school. Eventually, yes, she does. We will be right back. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. 
If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? And we have returned. So there's this incredible trauma for her in a multitude of ways. And and one of those ways is that she has to return to school and be looked upon suspiciously. Eric, right away the rumors started about Sandra Chesky. You can't keep secrets. Everybody knew there was a lone survivor, a young girl. Why? People started directing anger at her. We've lost these kids from our community. She's involved somehow. The community started passing judgment on her. She was a little tramp. She was dating one of the killers. She offered all of them sex so that she would live. It was a drug deal that went bad because a little bit of marijuana was found out there. All of these horrible rumors went around about this girl, and now she's not believed by the homicide detectives. But lo and behold, here comes Sheriff Craig Vinson, the Lyon County Sheriff that gets you Manitou. He was the one that couldn't make it out to the park that night because of the fog with his one deputy. He comes into Sioux Falls, and he becomes her rock. He's like a father figure to her. He believed Sandra. He was calm. He took her off by himself, and he said, I do believe you, Sandra. He was an old gut-feeling law enforcement guy, and he thought she was telling the truth. Now, when we wrote Gitchy Girl Uncovered, we met with five Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigators that were on that case. We met with them for a full day, my wife and I, when we wrote the book. A couple of them believed Sandra, too, but a few of them did not. They thought she was kind of telling the truth, but kind of lying. So even these highly trained BCI agents weren't quite believing her. None of this was jiving. Why wasn't she gang raped? What killer is going to bring her home when it's all said and done and not finish her off? Why would they gun down four kids and leave a living witness? It's not making sense. And, of course, then there's this manhunt. It goes on day after day. And one of the one of the things that they were trying to do, Eric, is they thought if they could find that abandoned farm where she was raped, it might give them the connection to the killers and the rapists. So. One of the BCI agents had Sandra explain what the farm looked like, and he sketched it out. When she said, yes, that looks like the place, they made a bunch of photocopies. They started distributing them to farmers around the area. Rural delivery drivers, look for these abandoned buildings. If you see anything that resembles this, let us know. Sandra Chesky was kept in the juvenile detention lockup center 
for her own personal safety. Her mom and her brothers were removed from their house because the law enforcement that believed her knew there was three killers on the street. They had to protect the family somehow. So Sandra's in protective custody locked in the juvenile detention center and her family's been removed. And when they got a, when they got a favorable hit on some abandoned buildings, they would go to the juvenile detention center and drive Sandra Chesky out there. And of course, day after day, they would take her to an abandoned farm and she would say, no, this isn't the place. And now the, the homicide detectives are getting very frustrated. One of them stopped her in the hallway of the police department and said, look, this has gone on for over a week and a half. You're lying. There's no abandoned farm. You're protecting somebody. Come clean. I mean, they, they were just on this girl so hard. And then, lo and behold, almost two weeks after the murder, they got a they got a tip of uh, an abandoned farm, and they drove Sandra out to it. And she said, "No, this isn't the place either." And it was about, I suppose, this abandoned farm is about. 15 miles northwest of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So as they're driving back, after she said, no, that's not the place, they're on some gravel roads, making a loop back to the juvenile detention center for her to be kept safe. Sandra goes, wait a minute, there's an abandoned farm right there. Slow down. I think this is the place. She said, yes, this is the place right here where I was raped. And then she looks up and there's a pickup truck driving down the road. And she starts screaming, oh, my God, there he is right there. There's there's the boss right there. He was driving down the gravel road, and she identifies him coming down the road. And he's instantly put into custody. Incredible. Uh, that That's something that if you saw it in a movie, <laughs> you'd be like, no way. <laughs> Come on. That's just too much of a coincidence. <laughs> Here the young 13-year-old girl helps apprehend one of the killers. Now, one of the interesting things about the apprehension of Alan Fryer out on that gravel road is her description of the pickup truck. He was driving, by the way, the same pickup truck that she was taken away in from Gitchy that night. There was the cracked windshield. There was the inspection sticker that was orange in color. There was a glove compartment, exactly how she described it. It was a fleet side pickup with a stock rack on the back. The pickup was exactly how she described it. So one of the BCI agents gets in the vehicle on the passenger side, and when he crawls into the vehicle to keep an eye on Alan Fryer while they're processing his arrest, the BCI agent sees that uh, there was a shotgun laying on the floorboard of his car. So the BCI agent gets in the passenger seat and puts his feet on the on the shotgun. And while he's sitting there, he looked into Alan Fryer's eyes, and the BCI agent said he knew that I knew that he knew that I knew he was the killer. You could see it in his eyes. And then while Alan Fryer is sitting there behind the steering wheel, Alan Fryer reaches down and lifts up his T-shirt and starts reaching into his belt. And the BCI agent thought he was going for a handgun and immediately started pulling out his own 357 Magnum. And Alan Fryer pulls a pack of cigarettes out of his belt. The BCI agent said, never in my life have I known anybody to carry their pack of cigarettes in their belt under their T-shirt like that. He thought he was going for a handgun. So after they apprehended uh, Alan Fryer, they immediately focused on his two brothers. And then Hatchet Face, the 24-year-old, he decides he's going to plead guilty. And he starts telling the investigators everything that happened that night, that he was one of the trigger men that helped execute. They, he told that they had gone out there to poach a deer. We know exactly how the executions took place, who was shot first. 
everything that we wrote about in the books is all comes from David Fryer, who decides to plead guilty. Alan Fryer, the 29-year-old boss, and James Fryer, the rapist, sneaky, they decide they're going to go to a trial. They're going to stand trial and try to fight it. Does it take this identification for police to finally believe her? Or were some suspicious that she was still involved somehow? <laughs> no, no. She's now, now everybody believes Sandra Chesky, except for the community, Eric. We'll get into that here towards the end. Now let's go to the trials. And I'll, I'll condense this thing. But here you've got a 13-year-old girl, okay, Alan. And James Fryer are now housed in the Rock Rapids Lyon County Jail. Sheriff Craig Vinson, who became a father figure to Sandra during this whole thing, is the head of that jail. It was kind of like a small kind of a jail. It's kind of like Mayberry, Andy Griffith. Okay. Sheriff Taylor's wife, uh, Sheriff uh, Vinson from Rock Rapids, his wife made the meals for the Fryer brothers while they were in jail. So, during the trials, you've got a 13-year-old girl who, by the way, turns 14 during the trials. The trials end up going on for almost over a year and a half. And, she, of course, Sandra Chesky is a star witness. While the trials are going on, the two Friar brothers escape from the Lyon County Jail, which causes more fear in the area. What happened was the Lyon County Jail had some new locks installed on the jail doors. They were bolted into place. But somebody forgot to have a welder brought in and weld those bolts into place. Alan Fryer, the boss, saw this as he was being brought back and forth from the jail for the trial. He got a piece of wire off his bed, and he shaped it into a ratchet. And at night, he started working on those bolts. He got those bolts loose, and him and Sneaky escaped from the Lyon County Jail. Now there's more terror in the area. Sandra Chesky has to put back in protective custody. Her family has to be put in protective custody. People around the area are terrified. Where are these killers at? Are they going to be in our house, our garage tonight? Well, the Friar brothers, Alan and James, they stole a pickup truck in Rock Rapids, Iowa, and they start heading across South Dakota, heading west towards California. They make it as far as Gillette, Wyoming, and in typical stupid Friar fashion, with their stolen vehicle, they hit a woman, a pedestrian, who's walking across the street, and hit her with their vehicle as they're roaring through town. And, of course, people in Gillette, Wyoming, get the identity of the vehicle that hit this woman. Thankfully, she wasn't seriously hurt or killed. There's a high-speed chase outside of Gillette, Wyoming, and they get Alan and James Fryer, who are immediately shipped back to the Lyon County Jail, which you can bet now there's been a welder brought in, and those bolts are welded back into place. And, by the way, Sheriff Craig Vinson, he got in the media. He took total responsibility for those bolts not being welded in place. He said, point the finger at me. If I'm in charge of this jail, if those didn't get welded into place, it's on me. I'm responsible for that jailbreak. So he was a stand-up guy. When these guys were interrogated, who broke first? Who spilled their guts first? <laughs> The first one, the first one to break was uh, Hatchet Face, the 24-year-old, the middle-aged brother. He's the one that decides he's going to plead guilty, and he thought there's no death penalty in Iowa, okay? And these murders took place in Iowa. Never had been a death penalty in the state of Iowa. He decides he's going to plead guilty, cooperate as much as he can, and against his lawyer's advice, he signs the papers to go in front of the judge. He thought he was going to get favor by the Iowa judge by being cooperative. 
Well, the Iowa judge said, nah, sorry, guilty, life in prison without the possibility of parole. When Hatchet-faced David Fryer heard that sentence, he tried to renege his guilty plea, and he wanted to go to trial then, but the Iowa lawyers or judge said, no, we're not playing this game. They shipped him off to the Fort Madison Maximum Security Prison while Alan Fryer, the boss, and James Fryer are doing uh, their murder trials. So David Fryer was the first to crack. When they interviewed Alan Fryer, of course, he said that it was the boys out at Get You Manitou. They had shotguns and shot at them first. There was a big fist fight. They got the shotguns away from the boys, and they shot him in self-defense. Okay, well, we have Sandra Chesky, the living witness, who saw what happened that night. We have David Fryer, who already pled guilty and told us what happened. Sorry, uh, Alan Fryer, the boss, your your fake story about the boys having shotguns and shooting at you is not going to stand. So that was their, you know, his defense. It was, it was a self-defense thing. And, you know, of course, it all collapsed. I think the interesting thing for your podcast listeners is Sandra Chesky. Here, this young girl, there were times, Eric, she was on the witness stand for three straight hours. Now, it's the defense attorney's job to try to confuse her, make her testimony look like it's not credible. Sometimes it went like this. First of all, Sandra Chesky was so young and so innocent and frightened of this whole court thing. She asked the judge if her mom could come up and sit in the witness box with her. The judge did allow that. Her mother came to every trial uh, with her every day that she had to testify and sat in the witness stand and held Sandra's hand while she testified. So here's how it went. The defense lawyer would say, come on, Sandra, you said yourself it was dark. It was scary and confusing. You can't say that my client, Alan Fryer, pulled the trigger. He was not one of the triggermen. And she said, yes, I could see there was enough light from the fire. And I saw he had his shotgun up to his shoulder. No, Sandra, you're wrong. And by the way, Sandra, let me ask you this. You gave consent for sex that night, didn't you? You gave your consent. And Sandra says, what does consent mean? That's how young she was. Oh, wow. So how long did it take for the jury to deliberate? Uh, one evening and then into the next morning. It was, it was pretty quick. I think uh, the closing arguments were about four in the afternoon. I think they they worked on the worked on it for till about ten o'clock that night. They went to bed. They got up and by mid morning the next day they had found them both guilty. They found them guilty of first degree murder. And of course, uh, Alan Fryer and James Fryer both, along with their brother Hatchapace, both sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, maximum security prison, Iowa. But now you've got Sandra Chesky, a fourteen year old girl, who said she didn't want applause. She didn't want pats on the back. She just wanted people to appreciate what she did for justice. And now she has to go back to school and try to pick up her life as a teenager. And now her life really collapses. Now she becomes the gitchy girl. When she went back to school, people she thought were her friends abandoned her. They wouldn't talk to her. She would sit down at a lunch table. The girls would get up and walk away and leave her sitting by herself. She said, I went to a school dance one night. Now, here's a pretty young girl. She said, nobody talked to me all night. Nobody would ask me to dance. Nobody wanted to be a part of the Gitchy girl. They spread the rumors. I was a little slut. I deserved what I got. I shouldn't have been out at Gitchy. If I got raped, I deserved it. She said, people didn't want me. The kids didn't want me at school. So Sandra drops out of school. For me as a teacher, it's one of the hardest things of this whole story. Were the newspapers perpetuating these 
terrible rumors or was it just spreading through the community mostly? It was just a, it was a community The the newspapers and the media were recording things as they happen. But Eric, you know how, you know, rumor runs like a prairie fire run out of control. And, you know, back in those days, I mean, obviously we we've come a long way, but back then it was like, what were you wearing? You, you provoked a rape. You deserved it. You got what you deserved. You're a, you're a rotten girl. You're a bad girl. Nobody wants to hang out with you. And so Sandra Chesky said, I dropped out of school and now she basically becomes a 15 year old adult who's traumatized, who never got any counseling, by the way, our, the high school kids that I work with, Eric, they can't understand that. They know if we had kids murdered in our high school, there'd be an army of counselors in there the next day talking to everybody, kids, teachers, whoever needed it. Not so back in the early 1970s. Maybe if you had a lot of money, you'd go see a psychiatrist, but you were expected just to not talk about it. Just don't talk about Gitchy Manitou and it'll go away. Well, Gitchy Manitou was inside this girl and it was eating her apart. People didn't want to associate with her. She became known as the Gitchy Girl, and that's what they called her. There's the Gitchy Girl, the girl from Gitchy, who got what she deserved. Do you think there was some blame going on? I mean, in the minds of some, these four boys from the school were murdered, but she wasn't? I mean, why did she deserve to live while the others didn't, you know? I I think I think you're right, Eric. I think that's part of it. I think the community's mad. Why are you alive when the boys are dead? And Sandra started feeling the same way. She was suicidal, post-traumatic stress. She didn't feel like she should be alive and the boys are dead. She would go set by their graves and talk to them when the weather was nice and sing and stay there for hours at their gravesite. Classic post-traumatic stress and survivor's guilt. And she dealt with it and dealt with it and dealt with it and kept it all inside for years and years. How did she manage to pull herself through? How did she find within herself the strength to continue to move forward? Here's what she said. She find, she found the right man. She had a lot of failed relationships. A lot of people didn't understand. She had been married for 33 years to the same man, a very patient, loving person, very understanding. She also discovered pet therapy on her own. She rescued a dog that was almost dead. And when she nursed the dog back to health, it made her feel like she was worth something. So she started rescuing animals. And now we know that pet therapy is a classic uh, therapy for people that have been traumatized. And she kind of discovered this on her own. And then, of course, uh, she she never had any children of her own. She said they tried, but it didn't happen for them. But she raised two stepsons. Her husband had two little boys. And she basically was her mother from the time they were little, little boys. They call her mother. And she said, I had the boys. I had pet therapy. and But she stayed to herself. Gitchy Manitou was still eating her up, Eric. She kept it inside. When music from that era would play, she would collapse. She said there was times she, re, she would recite the Lord's Prayer 50 times in a row just to not think of Gitchy Manitou. She couldn't take showers. She couldn't close her eyes with the water running over her eyes. She was always felt like somebody was going to be sneaking in, the, in on her in the bathroom. She, I mean, she's still, she'll forever be the Gitchy girl. But what a strong girl. She'd come a long ways. At what point in her life did she feel that things were changing, that she wasn't being pointed at, talked about? Was it a, a gradual feeling over time? 
Eric, it wasn't until the book came out. When we released Gitchy Girl, we went to one of our first book signing events, and there was packed. There were, I, it was packed. People waited for an hour to get in to see the elusive Gitchy Girl, the mysterious girl from Gitchy Manitou. And they hugged her. There were tears. There were some women that went to school with her and said, please forgive me, Sandra. I was one of those girls that shunned you. You didn't deserve that kind of treatment. We were teenagers and we were stupid. We should have never treated you that way. She received a zillion hugs when the book came out. And that's when she said she first felt like she was healing. And she told us one of the sad things that Sandra said was during the trials when she was 13 and 14 years old, it was a media frenzy. The newspapers always trying to get a picture of her. So one of her lawyers tried to protect her. They said, Sandra, just walk with your head down, look at the ground and don't let people see your face. And then the, the newspaper journalists can't take pictures of you and spread it all over the newspaper. Sandra said for 40 years, she walked with her head down until the book came out. Now she's finally walking with her head up. Wow. So this book is, is part biography of her, part true crime. Where is she right now with everything? She always wanted to go back out to get Manitou and do something for the boys, okay? About a summer ago, last summer, uh, my wife and I had some probably 70-pound, we had four pink outcropping rocks carved with the boys' initials in in 1973. And she wanted to go out to get Manitou with a member of each one of the boys' family, which they did. They've been pretty supportive of Sandra Chesky, the, the boys' family members. We went out there. We laid those rocks, not where the boys were murdered. We found a beautiful place at Gitchy Manitou. We put those rocks out there. We said prayers and held hands. There was a lot of tears. An eagle flew right over the top of us while we were having the ceremony. And it was it was a very healing thing for her. And now Sandra says, I don't fear going back out to Gitchy Manitou. Now I can go back out there and I can pray and I can be near the boys and so every step has been a little healing for her from that ceremony where we did that to people hugging her and telling her she was brave and telling her story. Uh, but she's still scared at night. She still can be put into a depressive funk when she hears a song from that era. But she always comes back to her religious faith, her belief that the boys were her heroes. Mike say, tried to save her life that night. They never begged for their lives or cried. They didn't let on to her that things were as bad as they were. She she honors the boys, and and she uh, has moved forward. Her mother, she's always been very close to her brothers and her mother. Uh, she just lost her mother uh, just about a week ago, um, yeah, about a, a week or two ago. Her mom passed away, and so that was tough on her. You obviously stay in regular contact with her? Uh, yes. So at one point she actually went to the prison, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's kind of an interesting story for your podcast listeners. Sandra always wanted to confront the Friar brothers about that night. Ask why did they have to kill the boys? If it was if they wanted to rape her, why didn't they just take her? Why did they have to kill the boys? Well, the rapist James Friar, the 21-year-old, refused to ever talk to Sandra. Uh, David Fryer, the 24-year-old hatchet faced, refused to talk to her. Alan Fryer, the boss, through a victim's right advocate a couple years ago, agreed to meet with Sandra Chesky. She said it was a very difficult, hard thing. She got so physically sick for two days before she went and confronted Alan Fryer. But she did confront him. 
She said I had to be cordial. That was part of the deal. I couldn't get mad or call him names, but I did confront him and ask why the boys had to die that night. And, of course, Alan Fryer was nothing but a sociopath. He killed nobody. He was the hero. He took her home that night. It was his brothers that pulled the trigger and did all the killing. He was the hero. And she said, Alan, I was standing right next to Mike Hadreth when you told us to come out of the trees. It was you that shot Mike Hadreth in the chest and the shoulder and knocked him to the ground. Don't say that you didn't shoot anybody. Oh, no, that wasn't me. That was one of my brothers. You're mistaken, Sandra. So she said, Alan, you're a liar and you're a murderer and you deserve to die in prison. And so she came out of there. She said, she'll tell people I went in feeling like a victim. I came out feeling like a survivor by confronting him. And so that was healing for her, too, to be able to confront them after this many years. So the Fryer brothers were and are very willing to throw each other under the bus. Um, so much for blood is thicker than water. <laughs> they are all serving in the same place, right? They were for 40 years. They were in the Fort Madison Maximum Security Prison in Iowa. But when Alan Fryer decided to meet with Sandra Chesky, Hatchet Face and Sneaky got mad at him. They went to the warden and they requested a transfer to another Maximum Security Prison which was granted. So those two were moved to Fort Dodge Maximum Security Prison. They didn't want to be around their brother anymore because in their eyes, he was supposed to kill Sandra that night. He left the living witness and now he talks to her. So they parted ways with their brother after he met with Sandra. Oh, that's so pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Did you request interviews with the brothers? Did you try to get their versions of things. They wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to anybody. And we knew, we knew that Sandra was going to be confronting one of them. As the time we started writing the book, the victim's right advocate had already completed the process. And it was, she, we knew she was going to meet with them. We decided to let her talk and confront them. We knew what their story was going to be. We, you know, we had, you know, we had all of the, you know, the police reports and everything. We know what their defense was going to be. And after Sandra met with Alan Fryer, we didn't need to talk to him because it was they were all bull crappers anyway. Sociopath, liars, murderers, rapists, the evil of the world. You've got the benefit, of course, as a writer to see the story in its entirety from the rear view mirror. Um, what is your view of the story overall in, in hindsight? I know you mentioned you have some of your own theories on ulterior motives, etc. First of all, as authors, one of the things that we're really pleased about is the healing that the book has brought to Sandra Chesky. We didn't know it was going to have that quality, but it did. So we're really pleased with that. We're pleased that we were able to set the record straight. The book is sold tremendously around the tri-state area here. The boys have now, and their families that didn't know any about this, they now know the truth of what happened at Gitchy Manitou from the survivors, from the killers, and from the investigator's point of view, the truth is all out there. Sandra wasn't dating anybody. She wasn't offering them sex to live. It was not a drug deal gone bad. They were teenage kids that were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so we're, we're pleased with that. We contend that they were sociopaths. They wanted the control. They needed the control. They were violent and dangerous. We believe it was about sexual assault. That's why they 
shot at the boys and left Dana standing, who they thought was a female because he was so young and his hair was long, and Sandra. Okay, And when Dana was found out that he was a boy, he was executed and Sandra was taken away. So we believe the motive was uh, sexual assault based as well. So that's what we believe the theory was. And you've just got cold-blooded killers, just crazy dudes that came out of the dark. Again, something from a horror movie for the kids at Gitchy Manitou State Park that night. So your personal connection, again, has to do with your best friend, Mike. Were you able to take this book to his family and sit down and talk with them about it? Yes. You know, Mike, I was able to visit with Mike's mom uh, just prior to writing the book before she passed away. His mom and dad are both gone now. By the way, Mike's dad was a decorated World War II veteran. Uh, his mom and dad are both passed away. But his brother, Bill, Mike's brother, Bill, and his sister, Lynette, are very pleased with, with the way the book was written and the story that was told about the boys. You know, so many people just thought they were drug dealers. Uh, they were murder victims. We were able to present to the readers and the community who these kids were as people that had hopes and dreams and talents and teenage kids who just had had life and wanted to live and have fun like any other teenage kid. Well, this has been so great, you spending some time with me here. Let's talk about your book and where people can get it. And you have a website too, right? Uh, yeah, if if people want, you know, the best way to just is just to go to Amazon and, and just type in Gitchy Girl or Barnes & Noble. And, you know, they can order it on an ebook or paperback, whatever they prefer. And uh, we have uh, uh, Phil and Sandy Hammond, uh, Gitchy Girl uh, site. You just got to type in uh, Phil and Sandy Hammond, uh, Gitchy Girl or Phil Hammond author, and there's a lot of stuff on there. And, you know, we, we try to answer everybody that, you know, contacts us. You know, we, we take the time to try to get back to anybody, and we're real appreciative of people like you, Eric, with the podcast, putting on a good podcast and uh, spreading the story. And it's, it's a very – I think the readers, if they get the book, people are saying it's, it's different than the, the traditional true crime book. It's like you said earlier, Eric. It's a human interest story. It's a true crime story. And it's just, it's got a different flavor. And I think that's been the popularity of this book. And of course, the strength of a young girl and a woman who had to go on. And I, you know, everybody has bad things that happens in their life. And I think Sandra Chesky can be a role model for everybody that life is going to throw horrible things in our path. And through the support of those around us that we love and our faith or whatever, there's things that we can do to move forward. And I think Sandra Chesky is a good role model for that. So, Well said. Appreciate it again. Thank you. Eric, thank you for having us on. Again, I've been speaking to Phil Hammond, who, along with his wife, Sandy, wrote the book, Gitchy Girl. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.